Last week, we began in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning a sermon on liberating love, where Paul continues to teach the incredible gift of salvation and what it really means to us. Often we think about salvation and we think about, okay, I, I, I understand what this means. In chapter 1, Paul began explaining what God really did for us, but then he, when he hit chapter 4, he began the practical applications of it. And it's the continuation of that practical application that we're looking at this morning. We are free, finally, when we receive Christ as our Savior, we're free to live life the way God intended us to live it, which is totally different than the way the world lives it. And we see all the disappointment. We see the troubles around us. And so today, as we look at the Scripture, I want you to see this is an application of what you learned in chapters 1 through 3. We're now free to be and not to be. Last week, if you were here, I was explaining about uh, Hamlet and how in his soliloquy, that's when he was telling the audience what he was thinking as he's just thinking out loud. And he began with this to be or not to be. And he was looking at the situation in life and he was saying, do I really want to be or is it better not to be? And we saw how serious of a question that really was. Today we see it used for all kinds of things. But in the actual original statement of it, it was a very serious thing. Paul in this statement, Paul said it first, um, Paul said to be and not to be. And that is where we find real joy in living. This morning, Albert read for us uh, the passage and I had him go back and read chapter 2 because I wanted us to remember what we were. It's so easy to come right in and we rush right in and we say, give me an application, give me something I can go home with. And we forget what a great God we serve. And he says, he began by saying, and you has God made alive who were dead. We didn't bring anything to this arrangement. You can't, you can't come to God and go, okay, God, when I'm good enough, then I'm going to make my move, and then you'll accept me because I've done all these good things. Paul was reminding us, you were dead. I was dead. And God made me alive. And not only did he make me alive, what I used to have inside me was a spirit of disobedience but not anymore. And it was by grace that God saved me. And when God saved me, he made me, he equipped me to now be able to do good works. We don't do good works to please God. We do good works because God now has made us to be able to do good works. Knowing that, knowing that now it's in your DNA, we go to chapter 5, and last week we began by looking where he said, Be therefore followers of me as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, 
neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to just very briefly begin where we started last week, but then I want us to finish the message from last week. First of all, he says, we are free to be. Notice what he says there in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, be ye therefore followers of God. The word followers there means imitators, someone who is, is captivated with someone and is fascinated and paying attention to everything that that person does. He says, be ye therefore captivated with the Father. You are free to imitate your new father. Notice the, the three commands for walks that we've seen so far. The command, first of all, to have to walk in love, verse 2. He says, I want you to walk worthy. In verse, I'm sorry, in verse 1, he says, I want you to walk worthy. Live your daily lifestyle in a way that represents your new family. You see, as a Christian, we're now free to live differently. It's not today, it, it's not drudgery, it's not something that's being forced on you. Sometimes we look at the Christian life as a, as a, a lot of do's and don'ts. And we think, okay, well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this. And that's only because we don't understand what's taking place. Before the way we lived, we had to do that, we had to do that, and we had to do that. We had to live the way we did because we were sinners and our master was Satan. And Satan, we were in jail, we were in prison, we had no choices. So you look at this and you realize in chapter 4, he says, I want you to have a worthy walk. And in verse 17, he says, I want you to have a different walk. He says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. He's saying, you don't have to walk the way you used to walk. You're not trapped anymore. Then in verse chapter 5, verse 2, he says, I want you to have a loving walk. I want you to imitate God's walk. And what do we know? We learned the week previous from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32, we learned how God loves. God is tender-hearted and forgiving. You know, it says, be ye kind, tender-hearted and forgiving. What do we know about God today? We know God is kind. He does for us what we don't deserve. He's tender-hearted. He has a feeling for us and for what we're going through, even though we don't deserve his kindness to us and his, his tender-heartedness for us. And he has a compassion for us, which is a forgiveness. It's using resources when someone doesn't deserve it. 
That's compassion. When you use your resources for someone who doesn't deserve it, that's compassion. And he says, I want you to have a loving walk. I want you to imitate God. Verse 32 of chapter 4 tells us this is the kind of love that God has. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, now imitate God. Be fascinated with your heavenly father, just like a child is fascinated with their, with their earthly father. You know, the greatest evidence of the loving walk is giving undeserved forgiveness. You see, most of us have been hurt very badly. It happens on a regular basis, and when that happens, we, are, we would even say, I just wish I could get this fixed up. If they would only do this, then I would be free to forgive. And the reality is, God tells us, we can forgive regardless of the other person. It doesn't fix the relationship issue. And I'll explain that again in just a moment. We can forgive because God forgives. We forgive because they don't deserve it. And what that does is that liberates us now. We don't have to carry that baggage around all the time of, look what this person did to me, and look what this person did to me, and look what this person did. And by the time we're done, we've got suitcases under, under our arms and by the handles, and we're burdened down, and we can't hardly go each day because we're having to keep track of all these hurts. And God says, just let go of them. You couldn't do that before under Satan's regime. But God says, let me show you what real love looks like. Real love forgives when the other person doesn't deserve it. I would encourage you, if you didn't get to hear last week's message, go back and listen to it. It's on the podcast, and that way you can, you can just slowly go through it in your mind and study the text, and you can see for yourself, here's what God says. The greatest gift of this liberating love is that it keeps us from being buried in our hurts. Last week I mentioned 1 Peter. Above all things, have fervent charity or fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins, and then it says, use hospitality. How do we get along? How do we handle life? How do we keep from becoming overburdened? It's when we use love, not the world's kind of love. Last week we looked at, we are free to be. Now today, we continue on with the text beginning at verse 3, where it looks we are free not to be. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named once among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And then look at verse 7 with me. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So here's the question we, we have to think of this morning. To what degree can and should God's spiritual blessings impact our lives? To what degree can and should God's spiritual blessings 
Everything that we saw in chapter 1 and the explanation of what we used to be in chapter 2 and Paul's prayer in chapter 3, he says, now how should that impact us? You know, this is the question that we have to stop and consider. If we just rush ahead and we forget what we know, we're going to be discouraged when we look at life. But when we pause and think about how should my Christianity, how should my relationship with God impact the way I live? Can it change the deep-seated life patterns that I hide and I'm ashamed of? Can Christianity really change those things in my life that I don't want anyone else to know that I'm like? Can it radically impact the way I think and the way I speak? Some of us, depending on our backgrounds, our speech embarrasses us sometimes. When we get under pressure, the things that come squirting out really bother us. We're ashamed and we're embarrassed and we say, can God really change that in my life? Can my new life in Christ change my habits? Can it change the way I view and treat others? One commentator made this question, asked this question, what is the effect of God's light in a life of purity? Now I want you to notice Paul's challenge that we're going to look at. He's telling us you are free. Don't live in the bondage you were freed from. Love changes, God's love changes the way you love. Last week in passing, I, I mentioned Otis on the Andy Griffith show. Remember, Otis was the town drunk. Interestingly enough, Otis in real life was a man who never drank. He was a Christian. But Otis in the storyline of Andy Griffith, remember how he would go in and Andy and Barney would be sitting there talking and Otis would just walk in, walk right past them, walk to the jail cell, open it, close himself in it, and lock himself up. Now you remember their jail was not incredibly secure, was it? Remember the keys were just hanging on the hook right outside the jail cell. But here's the fascinating thing. Otis incarcerated himself. He could have been free, but he wasn't because of what he did. And you know, Jesus Christ has set us free, but many days we walk back into the old jail cell and we slam the door and we think we are stuck. We have to live the old way. And what our text is telling us, it may even be confusing at first. You say, why does he talk about walking in love the way Jesus Christ walks? And then he says, but fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Because what I want you to see, he now compares it to, verse 1, he says, be captivated with your heavenly Father. Now he's going back and he's reminding you what it's like to be captivated with your old master. Your old master. Scripture tells us in John 8, Satan is a liar. Satan is a murderer. And you can always depend on him to be that because that's who he is. He's a destroyer. 
He would take the thing that drew you to God, his goodness. Remember the scriptures tell us it's the goodness of God that bringeth us to repentance. How do we know? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish. What do we know about God? God is not the angry God who is ready to beat you down every time he sees something that you do wrong. God saw what you were doing and God said, I love you in spite of what you have done. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing good we had to offer. What does that tell us about our God today? It lets us begin with a wholly new perspective. We don't look at God today and fear him because he is a mean ogre. We needed to fear Satan. We need to fear what Satan does. We shouldn't look at satanic things and think that they are jokes or something that should not concern us. We know Satan is a liar and a murderer and a destroyer. So what does he do? Satan tells us, here's what love looks like. Now, the word perverted means to twist or to disfigure, to make it so that it's not the way it should be. What does Satan do? He takes God's love and he perverts it, he twists it. So he's going to give us a look at how things have, per, how Satan has perverted God's love into something that doesn't liberate us, but incarcerates us. Now we're used to hearing the word fake news. Sadly, we hear it all the time, almost on both sides of the political parties. Paul addresses Satan's fake love and how, it how it's deceptive and how it leaves you empty. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Now note the things that we're about to see that are not love. Here's the command, let it not, verses three and four. Perverted love actions. Why would Paul mention fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness in contrast to Christ's love? Because the world's love is all about getting. And God's love frees us to give. That's what radically changes relationships. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. The world's love, Satan's deceptive love, Satan's twisted, it's perverted love, says love gets. You read about all the relationships. You watch any of the, uh, the movies that are being presented to us and what happens. We see right away, they're presenting love relationships that are all about getting. It's not about how will this impact the other person, it's what do I want? Now you understand as we read these next verses, how, why he's comparing it to Christ's love. Christ's love was all about giving. Even when we had nothing to offer, Jesus Christ gave. When we were, in fact, in opposition, he loved us so much, he gave. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, which was the, the shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? 
In other words, who's going to say, great job? For sinners also love those that love them. The longer passage in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now note the Father's kind of love. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. But if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Imitate your Father. The world's love is only given if it can get something back. We see this all the time. Oh, I'll take this person out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them, I'll take him to the nicest restaurant, but beware. He's going to try to hurt you. He's going to try to take something from you because it's Satan's kind of love. Satan's kind of love is one that says, I will only give if I get something back from the other person. It's my needs. It's my expectations. It's my desires. When I was in sixth grade, a guy named Jeff began attending the church that I went to. And Jeff, I spotted right away when he drove into the church parking lot because Jeff drove a Porsche. I befriended Jeff just like that. Sadly to say, because... I wanted to ride in Jeff's Porsche. I befriended Jeff, not because he needed a friend, but because of what I could get out of Jeff. He said, I can't believe you would do that. And you're a pastor? You see, it is something that we do by default. Sadly, we take this into our marriages. Instead of having the idea that I'm going to love my spouse when they can't love me, when they don't express the right kind of love for me, we say, this is over. I'm not doing this anymore because of what they're doing to me. God says, when I saved you, I made you new, and now you're free. You don't have to act like your old master anymore. You can now be free to love and to give regardless of what the person can do back. And you contrast that to the movie love that you see, to the video love that you see, to the world's love compared to God's love, and we see this radical difference. It's understandable why the love presented in movies and songs and novels and television and video, why it leads to taking advantage of someone. Because 
the love that the world presents is all about lust. It's all what my eyes see and what I want. So notice now what he says, but fornication. The word fornication comes from the word porneia. Maybe that sounds kind of like a word that you recognize. Porneia is printed or visual material containing the explicit description or display of that which should be covered in secret. Pornography tends to stimulate an erotic love rather than a selfless love. It tends to make us think about what we want, not about the person that's being taken advantage of. Professor Richard Honer uh, said, this word is normally thought of in regard to extramarital relationships, according to Matthew 5.32, or according to incest, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. We look at those and we say, those are awful. Yes, they are. And what he's describing is he says, this is not God's kind of love. John Phillips says, in Paul's day as in ours, sexual promiscuity was taken for granted. Everyone indulged in it. It was an acceptable lifestyle. If you read the first chapter of Romans, the last part of that first chapter, you read that this was a lifestyle that many people were involved in. In fact, they encouraged other people to get involved in this kind of a lifestyle. And we find today, the world is trying to protect their view of love. They try to say, it's okay, these are consenting adults, this is this, this is that. And what are we finding now in the Me Too era? We're now finding that what used to be the way the game was played in the world is no longer being played that way because people are realizing Satan's lies about love are devastating. They destroy families, they destroy um, reputations. So he says, but fornication, this kind of love, he says, don't let it even be named among you. Don't even think that a little bit of this is good for you. Sometimes we would say, yeah, but I'm not doing it with anybody. I'm just going online. I'm just looking. What you don't realize is Satan's twisted view of love will destroy you. It will enslave you. God's love never enslaves you. God's love sets you free. He talks about uncleanness. That's any uh, wrong physical relationship, wrong thoughts, outside of a selfless, committed relationship. Yesterday morning, um, Friday morning, I was in the Twin Cities. And I was, I was checking out of a hotel. I noticed that the receptionist had a beautiful diamond ring on. It had three layers to it. It was almost where you had to stop and ask them to turn the lights off to really look at it because there was so much sparkle to it. And I, and I said, I said, someone really must love you. And someone has really taken time 
to select a ring for you, and they knocked it out of the park. And this girl just glows, and she said, yes, she said, it's really a cool, cool ring. And I said, do you have any children yet? And she said, no, not yet. And then she goes, oh, she said, I thought you were asking if we had set a date yet to get married. She said, yeah, we've, we've got one little girl. But she said, but we haven't gotten around to setting a date yet for our wedding. And I went from being really excited for her to being sad for her. Because obviously this man did not love her with God's love. This man loved her with Satan's love, which was what can I get from her? I'm not ready to commit. I'm not willing to commit to her. I just want something from her. I thought it was interesting. In the same week, so just this past week, Cindy was talking to a medical uh, person and they were looking at Cindy's necklace and she has her grandmother necklace on and so the lady was asking about it and uh, the lady went on to say, I don't think marriage is so important. And Cindy said, well, don't you think it's better for a child to have a mom and a dad? And the girl, I'm trying not to call her by name, the girl said, yeah, I guess you're right. It would be better for the child to have a mom and a dad. What kind of love was she initially thinking about? One that was thinking of the good of others, or was she thinking about something that was just for herself? we know she was thinking of Satan's kind of love. Now we find this really interesting thing where he says, but fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness. And doesn't that kind of stand out to you all of a sudden? It's like, wait, in the middle of all these terms of saying this is the wrong kind of love, they throw covetousness in? Why did Paul do that? Is that a wrong translation? Why is covetousness combined with the first two? Each, whether these first two or covetousness, are demonstrations of selfishness that do not think about the other person. When you covet what someone else has, if you were to, the list that's in the Old Testament is his manservant or his maidservant or his wife or his cattle or his Cadillac or whatever it happens to be, okay? When you look at that, what does he say? He says, why is that wrong? Because you are thinking about yourself. You're loving yourself rather than loving the other individual. He says, don't allow any kind of impurity, any kind of uncleanness, any kind of greed master you. It may not be an, an overt action. He says, it may be just thoughts about the individual. Then go to verse 4. He talked about perverted love actions in verse 3, and now in verse 4, he's going to talk about perverted love speech. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. He's talking about inappropriate speech. 
kind of a, a free translation of the Greek text here. It says, and let there be no obscenity or foolish talk nor, nor sarcastic ridicule, which are inappropriate, but rather giving of thanks. The word filthiness here has the idea of obscenity. Paul continues to warn about perverted love and moves from perverted or misdirected sexual actions to perverted speech. And then he's going to give a comparison with godly speech. Obscenity. Actions or words that are offensive or disgusting to moral principles or decency. People that say, I'll say whatever I want. I don't care what you think. What kind of love is that? Selfish love. I'm going to give my, my wife a piece of my mind. I don't care what she thinks. What kind of love am I showing? World love. World love is only if I can get something will I give something. If I'm not going to get something, I'm not going to give something. So he begins by talking about speech that is not aware of what other people are thinking and how this is hurting them. But then he talks about foolish talking and jesting. The idea here of telling jokes, and then those jokes going into ridicule of an individual. Um, interesting, these words are not found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they're, they're, and it's only used in the New Testament here, in this one text. And the context illustrates or indicates jesting that has gone too far, thus becoming sarcastic, and it turns into ridicule. When my jokes are not funny to the other person, my jokes are not jokes anymore, they're mean. Often, what do we hear people talk about? Getting a party, people are telling stories, telling jokes on each other, and what happens? Usually, you hear men tell jokes about their wife or their mother-in-law. What happens? Everybody laughs except for the spouse who is crushed. That's not love. That is Satan's perversion of love. Oh, I'm just teasing. You know I'm just teasing. Quit, quit being so soft-skinned. No, the problem is that's sin. That's not joking. That's why Paul puts all this in the context of be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. You want to know what walking in love looks like? It looks like how Jesus Christ loved. When it goes from telling jokes and then it becomes sarcastic and cutting, I've, I've as you have been, been around people whose sarcasm it's funny, and yet it cuts to the bone. I mean, it is just vicious. It could be just humor that's in bad taste. What did we learn in chapter 4? When he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, 
but that which is good to the use of building up, edifying, that it may minister grace. You see, when people speak, even unkind words to me, I'm free now. I don't have to respond to them in retaliation. I can still be kind. I can let my words minister grace. When things are going on in your house and maybe someone is saying something that they should not say, you're not trapped to have to respond in kind. And we all know what happens when people respond in kind. Someone is going to blow up and someone's going to storm out. Or someone's going to get hurt really badly. That's Satan's way because Satan hates God's image. Satan wants to do whatever he can to destroy God's image. And he's going to destroy you because you're made in God's image. The context for all of these words, based on the preceding verse, deals with sexual sins, which means dirty jokes, suggestive overtones. He says, don't let it even be something that you tolerate occasionally in your speech. Don't let it even be, oh, every once in a while is okay. Why? Because you've been freed from that. Why would you go back in the jail cell and slam the door and put yourself back in the old cage? You've been freed. He says, all of these kinds of speech, all of these kinds of actions, they're not convenient. They're inappropriate. Sins of the tongue are really sins of the heart. Sins of the tongue are really sins of the heart because it's out of the abundance of the heart. Out of what's in your heart is what comes out, which causes us then to back up and say, oh, I've got some cleaning that needs to take place in my heart now. I've been freed, but I've been believing the lie that this is okay to talk this way. Then again, we have one more of those zingers where it's like, where did that come from? Notice what he says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. So he's been talking about all this wrong kind of speech, and then what does he say? Instead, be thankful. <laughs> How did those fit together? It was just like in the previous verse where we said, where does covetousness fit in? Well, here, why did he throw in be ye thankful? Again, Richard Honer explained it. He said, instead of flippant speech that dishonors God, one should voice thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he has done. Young people, when you attack someone else with your words, you're not only attacking that person, but you're attacking the person that made that person. When you make fun of somebody else, you're really making fun of God who made them. So now all of a sudden, rather than coarse jesting and, and being sarcastic with someone and seeing if you can get your last barb in, he says, no, instead, be thankful. Think about that person that God has made. Think about who God is. 
Interestingly enough, we go back to Romans chapter 1, who has that lengthy section on the perversions of what happens when a person removes from God. Do you know what it begins with? They weren't thankful. They didn't acknowledge God as God. Neither were they thankful. So, in the Greek, we, we can't really see it here, but he has this play on words. Instead of sarcastic ridicule, the word is very similar to be thankful. And he's using this play on words to say, instead of this, be this. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Notice he's gone from talking about an event to a person that is characterized by these events. Can you see the difference there? In verses 3 and 4, he's talking about, he says, you shouldn't do this. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, these people who are characterized by living this lifestyle, people who are characterized, who this is how they live, what do we know about them? They're not God's children. And he says, those sins are the reasons why those people are going to be judged. And he says, so why would you as a believer want to have anything to do with this? Now, I've tried really hard this morning. I want you to see, I'm not looking at you and going, shamey, shamey, shamey. I can't believe you've done that. I can't believe you've been involved in that. I can't believe you ever thought that way. No, that's not what I've done. If you're feeling conviction, if you're feeling really assaulted today, it's not me. What I want you to see is God said, you're free not to have to live that way. It begins by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you become a new creature and you have been made in righteousness and true holiness, he says, your life can change. Then why do we have to talk this way? Because we have all these old habits, we have these old mindsets, and we still think... When someone treats me this way, this is what I've got to do. When someone cuts me off in traffic, I've either got to get on their bumper, or I've got to blow my horn, I've got to shake my fist at them, or I've got to give them some kind of gesture because you can't do that to me. Whoa, wait a minute. That was the old guy. The new guy says, you can have that spot. Wait, I can have that spot? Sure. Oh, I was just trying to get under your skin. No, I'm a new man. What I want you to see is what a great God we serve today. You didn't come here to be put under bondage because you're already under bondage if you've not received Christ as your Savior. And even as a Christian, you may still be under bondage because you are still living like Otis in his jail cell. When you know the truth, the truth can set you free. You know, he says, for this ye know. You know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this kind of lifestyle is not the lifestyle of a redeemed person. It's not a liberating activity. It's not the kind of love that liberates. It's the perverted love which, going, which is going to enslave and ultimately is going to destroy whatever it gets its part in. 
People who are continually involved in these activities are not kingdom people. Galatians 5.21, they which practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The kind of activity that's being described here is never part of God's kingdom. We are free to be and not to be. Christ changes our life. We're free to live like Christ and not like Satan. We're reminded that this kind of living is never to be part of our lifestyle. It's not occasionally acceptable. In fact, it's not even to be once found among us. Why would he have to say that? So that we don't think, I guess occasionally it's okay to let Satan have this one. Remember, Satan's a liar and a destroyer. That's what he wants to do in your life. Liberating love. The world is chasing a deceitful, fake love. It promotes it, it glamorizes it, it dangles it in front of us, it makes us think it's the cure for all hurts. But it disappoints, it damages, and ultimately it's going to destroy. Because of what we have in Christ, we are free to love the way God loves, and then free to interact with mankind in a way that mankind can't. Can I ask you a couple questions? I don't want you to answer them out loud. I just want you to think. And I'm asking these questions not to hurt you, but I'm asking as a doctor would so that you can say, oh yeah, I've got a problem here, so that then you can deal with it, okay? Have you been believing the lie about sexual purity? Have you been believing that it's okay to put that stuff in? That it's not hurting anybody, that everybody lives that way? Have you believed the lie that pornography can't hurt you? Or have you believed the lie that pornography doesn't hurt anybody else? Have you been believing the lie that everybody lives this way? Have you believed the lie that sexual purity is not possible? <coughs> See, I just can't help myself. Could I ask you just to back up for just a moment and first of all, ask yourself, have I ever accepted God's true love for me? In that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ, the godly, died for the ungodly so that he could bring me to God? Have I ever accepted that gift of salvation? That's the first question we have to ask because if you're trying to do this on your own, I can tell you, you're still in jail. But if you would say, you know, Pastor, I have received Christ as my Savior, I know that. Then the question is, have you begun to believe a lie that you're stuck, that you have to live the old lifestyle? How about in regard to speech? Do you find that you've been 
accepting offensive speech. Maybe the way you get a laugh is at someone else's expense. Maybe not necessarily thinking about who that was going to impact. Could I encourage you, start, start with your siblings, start with your friends, start with your spouse, with your family, and think about God has empowered me, he's given me the Holy Spirit, and by God's grace, I'm not going to follow Satan's way anymore. I'm not going to yell and get angry and give someone a piece of my mind. Even when my spouse responds in a way that isn't Christ-like, I'm free now. I can still say the right thing. Have you been saying sarcastic things that hurt or attack others? We live in a, in a country right now that it is the gloves are off and they can say whatever they want. They are critical and sarcastic and biting and they will say whatever they want to destroy. And I would encourage you, think, why are we that way today? You can't point to a president and say, well, if he would have just watched his tweeting or his mouth, it wouldn't happen this way. Or if it would have only been, or only, no, we back it up. And the reason why we are the way we are is because we have willfully chosen to remove God, remove God's love. So now the only thing we have left is what? The counterfeit. And we are in full-blown counterfeit mode as a nation. How do we change this? You can't make laws. We've already got them and we're breaking them. It begins with Christians who begin by saying, I don't have to go that way anymore. And then it is Christians who let their light, their love shine, so that even when people do wrong, when our enemies treat us wrong, what do we do? We love our enemies. And they will begin to go, wait, you're different. I mean, everyone else does this to me, and you did that? Tell me why you're different. Is there hope for America? I know there's hope for Americans. And the more Americans that have hope in God, the scriptures say, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I want you to go out today seeing there's hope. There's possibility. There can be change in your life and if you would say, Pastor, I'm in agreement with you, but I'm not struggling with these things. I've already, I've already gotten a hold of these things. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I, I live by this. I want to give you hope today that what you're doing when you go out and you let your light shine, people are looking for something that's different. And it may be time that we stop giving people a piece of our mind. Liberating love. To be and not to be. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 26. 
And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You know, as I was looking at these scriptures and was thinking about what we could study as we're looking at Palm Sunday and then Good Friday, thinking about the death of our Lord, and then thinking next week about Easter and Resurrection Sunday, and I was thinking, we only have a short period of time for each of these. And... One of the things that stood out to me as I was reading the parallel passages was how the Lord really doesn't tell us in the Gospels a lot about what it was like for our Lord. How easy it is to become familiar with these passages and to maybe take them for granted. But I found it interesting. If you want to know what the death of our Lord was like, you, you have to go somewhere other than the Gospels because the Lord in his wisdom has chosen to be very quiet about what the death of our Lord was like. There's a lot of movies, there's a lot of pictures that talk about the death of our Lord. You look at some very popular movies from a few years ago, and they were so graphic, I chose not to look at them. <laughs> 
because the scripture doesn't tell us that. But what the Lord does tell us in the scriptures opens our eyes to the great love of the Lord for us. I found it fascinating that Philip was sent by the Lord into the desert to meet with a man who believed in God but did not understand who the Lamb of God was. And he's in a chariot, and obviously he's not moving real fast because Philip could catch him. And he's reading out of Isaiah, and he has no idea what he's reading. You know, when you hear of someone who is suffering, it draws us in. If in the news we read of someone who is suffering, it causes us to stop and, and we have sympathy for that one. You know, as we think about all that Jessica has gone through, our, our hearts are drawn to hurt for her. But I find that Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about the suffering of Jesus Christ and what he really went through because Scripture doesn't want us to have sympathy for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sympathy wants us, God wants us to understand that Jesus Christ died specifically for us, for our sins. So as we, we're going to go back to the passage that Rory uh, read for us this morning in Isaiah chapter 53. And we're going to begin and look at the passage that this Ethiopian eunuch was reading. And I want us to see this morning what our Lord is like. If you want to really see what the suffering on the cross was like, you've either got to go to Psalm 22, where it tells you what Jesus was experiencing, or you have to go to Isaiah chapter 53. Sometimes, in fact, with some Jewish friends, they, the Jews struggle and they say, how do you know that this is talking about Jesus? You know, they, they're willing to agree that this will be the Messiah. But I find it fascinating, one, that Philip says, he's reading from Isaiah 53, and what did he do? He took Isaiah 53 and preached unto him Jesus. If you were to go to Matthew, if you were to go to John chapter 12, you would find Jesus quotes this passage about himself. Also, you will find in Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 53. And the apostle Paul then indexes that to Jesus. So because of that, I'm not going to spend time this morning trying to prove to you that Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus. Because Jesus says it, because the New Testament church believed it, because the Apostle Paul preached it, I'm going to assume that we will begin at this point and say, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy looking ahead, and it's about Jesus. Now, something to remember about Isaiah is the fact Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. 
So it's not that someone tried to go back and say, we're going to write this, knowing what took place, we're going to write this so that it looks like Jesus is the one. 700 years before Christ's birth, this was written about Jesus Christ. What I also want you to notice, we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to, first of all, look at our Lord's suffering, and we're going to look at our Lord's satisfaction. And something just to think about today is that suffering and satisfaction always go together. Maybe some of you today are in suffering, and you're thinking, will I ever get out of this? Please understand that in God's wisdom, God always connects suffering and satisfaction. And when we try to get around the suffering and just go to the satisfaction, we're finding that we're trying to go around the very thing that God has designed. Think with me for just a moment in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. What did Satan try to get Jesus to do? To avoid the suffering and immediately go to the satisfaction. So what did he say? If you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things, all the things that will be Christ's, but after the suffering. In fact, then Peter, what does he say? You know, he says, after you've suffered a while, make you perfect, make you complete. <laughs> so this morning, if maybe you're going through some suffering and you're struggling right now, could I just encourage you, look ahead. Our God is good. He's doing things in your life. He's doing things in my life. He has been doing things in your life. He has been doing things in my life, but he has not forgotten you. Satan is the one who wants you to think that you need to just avoid the suffering and go straight to the satisfaction. But you'll be missing the very things that you're going to need to enjoy the satisfaction. Let's begin. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What you have to remember with this is, this is a continuation from chapter 52, and in verse 13, he says, Behold my servant, he shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Verse 14, and many were astonished at thee, were astonished at him. Now he's looking ahead and he says, His visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man. Jesus Christ suffered more than anyone else has ever suffered. He totally understands what we have gone through. And then in verse 15 it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now the word sprinkle there, to be honest with you, I don't even get it when I'm reading that, except for the fact the word sprinkle there has the same root word as the word astonished. And I believe I'm doing a fair explanation when it says, many were astonished at the verse 14, so shall he astonish many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. 
What he's describing is he's saying, they will be astonished at who Jesus is. And then he comes to chapter 53 and he says, and who has believed our report? The prophet goes out, he tells this message, he says the Messiah is coming. This is what the Messiah is going to be like. And he says, and, who, and who's believed the report? You know, so often people say, well, if you just tell me, if you just show me, I'll believe. That's not what happens, is it? Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus is giving the parable, and the rich man who is in, in great torment says, go tell my brothers. If they just, if someone from the dead would go back, surely they would listen. And he says, no, they've got the prophets. They've got the Old Testament. They have Isaiah. And if they won't listen to Isaiah, they won't listen. So he says, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To whom is the arm of the Lord literally bared? It has the idea of when you take off your coat and you roll up your shirt sleeves. That's literally what he's describing here. And he says, look what God did. Who's believing this report? Who noticed what God did for us in the Old Testament? I, I can't remember which commentary it, it was. I want to say it's Talmadge, but I can't remember who made the statement, he said, you know, the Bible talks about God being able to just speak the world into existence. The Bible talks about in Psalms where creation is the handiwork of his fingers. Creation was nothing for God. But to redeem man, it was work. He rolled up his sleeves and he tackled what had, to be, what had to take place. Verse 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. As, as this living plant and as a root out of dry ground. What he's wanting us to picture, and because we're not as familiar with Israel history, he was of King David's line. King David's line had died out. There was no king. There was no monarchy in Israel at this point. Israel had dried up. And yet here was Jesus. He comes out of what seemingly is a dead pot. You know, the things that get left when I was in college, the, the plants that got left over Christmas vacation on the heater. And you come back and, and the, the ground in that pot is dry and cracked. And my poor little plant had just gone over. And it wasn't green anymore. It was just dry. The mental picture he wants us to see is he says, you've got to understand something. God is doing a miracle here. God is in the middle of what was a dry, dry ground. He has this young, tender plant that comes up. It talks about he hath no form nor comeliness when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. And the thing there, some have said, well, obviously then it's saying that Jesus was ugly, that Jesus had no beauty in him. But that's not what it's saying. Jesus was the perfect man. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, he had favor with God and man. Jesus was the ultimate. He was strong. But he had no finances. He had no houses. He had no wealth. He had nothing that people would be drawn to him as, as I've told you in the past, you know, sometimes, to my, to my shame, 
You know, there have been people that I have befriended because of what they had. Jesus said, even foxes have dens, but I don't have a place to lay my head. Jesus came, and he wasn't trying to attract people just by his wealth. He came as the poorest of poor. So there was no beauty that they should desire him. But notice verse 3, he was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised, and we esteemed him not. What are they saying? You know, we've, they looked at him, or Isaiah is saying they will look at him, and they will say, he's the problem. He's the reason why he's got all these problems that have come on him. They didn't value him. They, they looked at him, and they rejected him. And we didn't value him. And, but in verse 4, he then begins by saying, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He has now moved, and he wants us to recognize why did Jesus go through what he was going through? The Ethiopian eunuch was saying, why was this man suffering? Who's he talking about? Was he talking about himself? Was he talking about someone else? And Philip said, he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And look what he went through. He went through what he went through, not because of who he was. He was perfect. He went through what he went through because he took my place. He had borne our, you see that in your text? He's borne our griefs. He's had our sorrows. The things he went through were not because of him, but because of us, because of me. And we didn't recognize that. We aren't willing to say he was the one who did it for me. We're saying it was his problem. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. This was the only way that we could be right with God. There had to be a sacrifice. He was the lamb. You remember in John chapter 1, when John looks and says, Behold, look right there. That's the lamb of God. But Isaiah is describing what he was going through. He says, it's with his stripes we are healed. The punishment he took, this is substitution. It's not in the text, but it helps us to understand someone who takes the place of another. Propitiation. Jesus in our place. Because of what I am. It's so easy to get so comfortable with what we are. We live in a wonderful country where we, we can dress and we can enjoy and we begin to think, I'm okay, I don't need a savior. But he was describing for us, no, it was because of my iniquity, it was because of my sin, because of my wrongdoing. He took my place. 
It ought to stir our hearts rather than being cold. And say, yeah, I know that. I know that. Go on. Do something else. Give me something practical that today I can live by. The reason why we can do practical and live by that is because of our Savior. He took my place. And then he says this. He gives the general statement. Notice verse 6. And then he's going to give the personal statement. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's every one of us here this morning. We've all gone off of God's course. But notice now it's personal. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's easy to talk about the general. Oh yeah, everyone's a sinner. Until it comes down to the specific, no, I'm a sinner. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now he gives us a picture of what it was like on the cross. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So opened he not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from the judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. He died for you and for me. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. I thought in verse 9 it's an interesting statement. He made his grave with the wicked. It's a plural. And the next one is singular. It's not a generic saying, yes, he died. It's saying specifically for us today, you know, he chose to die with the wicked. But he because he came for the wicked. He, didn't, he came to save sinners. He came to save the sick, as we've been studying in Luke. Not those that are healthy. It's for those who recognize, no, I'm sin sick. So he made his grave. He took his place with the wicked, plural, and with the rich in his death, singular. Who is the rich man in his death that we, that we all recognize? Joseph of Arimathea. It was Joseph's grave. The prophecy is very specific. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. What I want you to notice is the first nine verses describe the suffering of the Savior. The last three verses are going to talk about the satisfaction of the Savior. Something that was fascinating to me, Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. The first three hours, the focus is all on what man did to him. And you notice the first three hours, his relationship with God is very good and strong. It's during those first three hours that he speaks to the people, that he, that he pray as the people are saying and taunting him, and he has the Pharisees that come by and are saying things to him, and he has literally the thieves on the cross that are saying things to him. It's at that point that he prays to the Father and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But at noon, so from nine to noon is all, the, the Gospels kind of cover all these various stories that are going on. But when you get to noon, 
from noon to three. If, if you're tracking with me, you already remember what happens at noon. The lights go out. The sun is blocked from shining. Some commentators will say God did that so that we would not see what Christ suffered. I believe them. But something that actually, as Caleb and I were talking uh, Thursday, I guess, and as Caleb and I were talking, we were talking about the kindness and the goodness of God that whether you're saved or unsaved today, you're going to walk out of this building and you're going to enjoy the sunshine and you're going to enjoy the warmth and you're going to enjoy all these good things from God. But there's coming a day when we will be, if we reject God, we will be separated from everything that's good because God is the author of all that's good. And if you reject God, you have rejected who he is, which means anything that's good is from God. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, which means what do we know that hell is like? What do we know that the lake of fire is like? There will be nothing there that is good because God's not there. Now notice what happens. At noon, we find God judging sin. And the lights go out. I don't know if this is right. But isn't it interesting when God turns his back on Jesus Christ, Jesus begins experiencing the lack of all that's good. Maybe at that point, it helps us to realize when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For me, you know, I've just always thought, well, it's the relationship, it's the whatever, God turns his back on him. But I don't think I will ever understand. In fact, I know I will not. Because of the grace of God, I will never experience what it's like to be totally abandoned by God. When there's nothing good, when I sense the absence of everything that's good, the wonderful love relationship and family relationships, not in hell. People who say, I'll go to hell because I'll be with my family, I'll be with my friends. No, you need to understand something, all that's gone. Family's a gift from God. Friendships are a gift from God. Light is a gift from God. There, you will be in burning agony in the lake of fire with no light. You will not see what's happening. You'll only feel. And Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never, and I hope for you, you will never experience what it's like to be totally forsaken by God. We're so flippant about this. And yet he writes for us. He says, because of the iniquity of my people, he was stricken. You see, he's wanting us to understand something. He wants us to understand the suffering of the Savior. 
oh, next week, we're going to be so excited. You know, people sometimes wear new clothes that reminds us of the new life we have in Christ. It's not wrong to wear new clothes. It's not wrong for those different things. They all were symbolic. Now it's just another sale. Now it's just more stuff. But let's not lose sight of the fact that those aren't bad things. They remind us of things, of real truth. But here we find he suffered. Isaiah describes it not so graphic that we can't comprehend it, which, like I said, some of the movies are just beyond what I can even let my mind do. Because God didn't share those, but God did share this. And God said, we rejected him. He was despised. He was afflicted. He was rejected. Why did God do all those things to Jesus? Because when you realize man did things, but when you look at it, man did not crucify Jesus Christ. God did. For me, but God did. And I started thinking through all these different things. I started thinking about living in a dry land that he lived in, no place of riches, hatred and rejection, sorrows and grief, smitten of God and afflicted. Why was that? Because that's what I should have been experiencing. That's what I should experience. That's what you should experience. To be totally rejected by God. That's how awful sin is. Satan says it's a good thing. Satan says do this, do this, do this. You need to understand anything that's good came from God. Anything that Satan tells you to do that perverts what God has done is only ruining how good it could have been. So he says, I did this for you. He was bruised for our, literally pierced. Um, he was wounded. He was pierced for our transgression. He was bruised, literally crushed for our iniquities. But what was that crushing? The crushing was not the physical side. The crushing was the spiritual side. He was crushed. But that's not the focus of the text. So we come to this and we realize, verse 9, he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Sinless. You say, how can that be? Could I just refer you to just a couple examples? You could go back and look at some others. What do we know? Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Pilate washed his hands and says, this man is sinless. Even the thieves on the cross, remember the one guy says, quit saying that. You and I are here because we deserve this. But this man has done nothing wrong. There was no question, was Jesus sinless? Was Jesus without spot? Was Jesus there for any reason of his own? And the answer is no. But now look at verse 10 with me. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? He hath put him to grief. When he shall make his soul an offering for sin, 
he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice what he says. After he had suffered, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, notice what was going to happen. It's going to have an effect. There will be many seed now. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He will be resurrected. He will live beyond this death. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. Travail, that word is used of pregnancy. Which means what? There is always an expectation of as the woman is going through that travail, that suffering, there is always the expectation of the joy that's to follow. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Hebrews chapter, two, chapter 12 verse 2 reminds us, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down, resurrection, at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Isaiah is, is telling us there is a satisfaction that comes with the suffering he goes on to say, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Sometimes we think, oh, there aren't going to be very many people that are saved. Narrows the gate. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. And we then begin to think that then a lot of people don't get saved because the wide way. No, what he's telling us is there's just one way to get to heaven. But there will be many that will be there. Don't lose heart. You keep sharing this good news of the gospel. And maybe for some of you today, can I just encourage you? You've known this, you've heard this, but you've not received this. Caleb, I just rejoice today for you. Because you've known this. I mean, you've grown up in a Christian home. You went to a church. You, you heard these things. And yet, he chose you know, that's the way it is for some of you. You've heard all these things, but you have not yet received. He goes on in verse 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. How did he do that? Therefore, he did that at the cross. He said, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He shall come uh, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's how he bore their iniquities. And as Philip was talking to the eunuch, he, starting at that point, preached unto him Jesus. And what was the Ethiopian eunuch's response? He said, I believe. What hinders me from now being baptized by being identified as a believer? And then he asked him, he said, do you really believe this? And when he verified that he believed it, he says, okay, you can be baptized. You know, today, as we, as we approach Easter, and like I said, I, 
I really wrestled. In fact, I went back and forth, and I, I actually was working on, I really wanted to do the triumphal entry today. And read about it, read about it. It was as if my soul was hard. And the Holy Spirit kept saying, I, want, I just want you to preach Jesus. I want you just to see Jesus this morning. I don't know in your heart today where you are. I hope today you'll see a loving God. A God who did no wrong. A God who was altogether lovely. A God who came and understands exactly the way you are because he lived here. I thought it was interesting, you know, if, if you read any mythology, you have Mount Olympus, you have all these different places, the gods are always distant from you. And the gods are always angry. They're throwing lightning bolts and they're doing different things at the people here on earth. But when God revealed himself to us, what did he do? He came down and he lived among us. And he understands our grief. In fact, he bore our grief. Would you receive Christ today? Would you like to receive that one? Maybe you've been disappointed in the past. Maybe people, maybe religious people, maybe people that claim to be Christians, maybe people that are Christians have really disappointed you. And because of that, you've kind of stood back and you've said, I'm going to hold back. I don't know. Is this really... Can everything they've been preaching really be true when you see how I've been treated or when you see how others have been treated? Can I just encourage you today? Look to Jesus. Look at how he lived. Look at what he did. Why would you reject him? Now it's your choice. You're always free to choose. There is no coercion. I, I wouldn't, I can't make you believe. But I would tell you, why would you not? I can tell you what he's been in my life. I didn't have to prove myself. He knew I was a sinner. I didn't have to say, God, look how good I am. You really want me. No, he looked in my life and he said, I see all your sin. I see all your wickedness. I see your deceitfulness. And I love you in spite of all of that. And I died for you. Would you not want to receive him today? You don't have to wait to be good enough. He took your place. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With your heads bowed, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit. Is God working in your heart today? Maybe you've had a number of reasons, and I'm not judging you for your reasons for why you've not received Christ up to this point. But if today, if you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you, if you say, I want that today, would you right now receive Christ? You do that very simply by, you need to know that you're a sinner. If you'd say, that's not a hard thing, I know. I've, I've, I've done things that are wrong. I violated God's laws. I'm selfish. I, and you can fill in the blank. If you'd say, I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I also recognize that Jesus Christ was not a sinner. He was God. He came. He died for me. 
The third thing is just, would you be willing to accept that gift? Many years ago now, he gave the gift of salvation. He offers it to you today, but you need to receive that. Right now, you can do that just there in your seat. If you understand, you say, okay. Would you right now just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I believe he came, the just one, the sinless one, for me, a sinner. And I accept that gift today. Please forgive me of my sins. I accept his sacrifice in my place. He suffered for me. Thank you, God. If right now you would say, I just prayed. I just received Christ as my Savior. Well, no one else is looking around. Would you just look up at me to where we make eye contact and I know when you're looking at me, you're saying, I received Christ just now. Is there anyone like that? I'm just going to just take a moment and look through a group. Dear Father, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. And I pray, Father, that today as we, through this week, we think about your passion week, your suffering week. We think about all the things that took place that you've recorded for us in this last week of your earthly life before your death and resurrection. I pray that this week our hearts would be filled with joy. Our hearts would be filled with gratitude. And Father, if there are some who have not received Christ, that this week would be the week when we reject Satan's lies, when we see you for who you are, a holy, righteous, just God who is loving and gracious and that we would receive him today. Or to enjoy you this week more than we have been, that we wouldn't be distracted. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.